0: Welcome to the Kingo Podcast, where we interview published authors, screenwriters, and story consultants to answer the question, what makes a great story? If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. Let's start the show. So H.R. DaCosta, also known as H.R.D., is a story analyst who's dedicated her time to studying films, screenplays, and novels in order to understand why some stories are gripping while others are just easy to walk away from. She's the founder of ScribeMeetsWorld.com and also the author of eight books on writing and storytelling, including Sizzling Story Outlines, Sparkling Story Drafts, Solid Story Compass, and Story Stakes. So we're lucky to have her here and excited for her to share her story knowledge with us. Thank you for joining us, H.R. DeCosta.
1: Oh thank you, Russ, for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Me too. Um, I know I was mentioning this, you have put in so so many hours, so much time into understanding story and writing. Uh, I can just tell from having read your books and, and looking at... Um, scribemeetsworld.com. It's, it's impressive, so I'm excited to get going here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so since you've spent that serious time, I want to ask you that, that question I ask a lot of our guests. What do you think makes a great story?
1: Okay, so my answer to that question, I guess you can sum that up with the expression, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, because my definition is very audience-centric. So basically, after audience members have experienced a story, if they conclude that that story is worth their time or that it's worth their money, then it's a good story. So then as a writer, the question becomes, well, what, can, what techniques can I use to elicit that reaction?
0: Absolutely. That makes sense to me, finding <laughs> it in terms of what the audience thinks is a good story. And, and so what, what does elicit that reaction in terms of getting the audience to think it's great?
1: Okay, so there are different things that can go into that, which is why storytelling can be so complex. But a big factor in that are the stakes. I think stakes can really make or break a story and just to make sure that we're on the same page I'll just do a basic definition so stakes are the negative consequences of failure if the protagonist fails to achieve his goal then something bad is going to happen and of course the definition of bad is going to vary according to genre. So in a romance, you know, maybe the only thing at stake is that the hero and the heroine are going to be unhappy if they don't end up together. And that that in some kinds of romances, those are the only stakes that are going to be in the story. But in a movie that has um, other elements like action or a thriller with chase sequences and things like that, the stakes are going to be, and I use the word, bigger but that's really for lack of a better term because in a romance the Future unhappiness of the hero and heroine that is big and that is big enough for a romance, but that's not usually going to be big enough for an action movie or other stories in that ilk. And so the stakes have to be bigger in the sense that they're going to encompass some kind of usual physical jeopardy and, you know, the fate of the world or uh, some hostages or something like that. Those are going to be the stakes there.
0: Hmm. And so do you then categorize stakes differently?
1: Um, I, well, I do, I do think of stakes. I mean, I think there are different types of stakes and I do, I guess in my mind, when I approach stakes, I do divide them up into what I think of action as I, what I do think of as action and romance. So yeah, they are kind of two different categories because the future unhappiness of a hero and heroine, again, it's enough in a romance, but it's not enough in an action movie. So you do have to approach them in different ways.
0: Okay, that absolutely makes sense. Can you tell us what what effect the stakes have on the audience emotionally, I guess?
1: Oh, that's such a good question, Ross. That's like perfect, because that's why stakes are so important, because they are what put the audience under tension, right? Because now that they know that something bad could happen if the protagonist fails, now they're worried about the protagonist. They're concerned about him. They're concerned about the stakes. And so they are under this state of tension, and the only way that they can relieve that tension is to keep on turning the pages. So so stakes are really fundamental to keeping readers glued to the pages of your story.
0: That absolutely makes sense. So, do you have any uh, maybe prescriptive techniques for coming up with um, with stakes or or making them more uh, enticing and creating more tension with them?
1: Oh, yeah, that is that is a good question. Um, I want to answer that in a second. I just wanted to go back to one point because um, this is also important: is that sometimes. Writers can think that likability is enough to keep readers turning the pages, right? Like if you like the protagonist, isn't that enough to keep on turning the pages because you want to see what he's doing? You you like him, so you're interested in what he does, right? So you can see how some people might think that it's enough to rely on likability.
0: Yes, I know. That's a uh... Creating the empathy for the character, I could see where people would say, okay, well, I've established my empathy, you know, the audience likes the guy, so I guess I can do whatever I want now.
1: Right, right. And so the thing with that is that you tend to run into a wall around the middle of the story. That's where you... you. You sense the limits of likability and also for things like curiosity, you know, cause people are curious about what happens next. And also for having a high concept premise, because that intrigues readers and they definitely want to turn the pages to experience that. But for all of those things, for likability, curiosity, and having a high, a high concept premise, you feel the limits of those around the midpoint, because that's traditionally where the protagonist is going to take on more risk. So, an audience member can sit there and kind of think, why is the protagonist persevering and continuing despite all these, you know, almost insurmountable obstacles? Why is he keeping on going? And the only conclusion they can really draw is because, well, it's it's really done for my own entertainment, right? And that's going to... Detract from their entertainment because it feels contrived and that's if you're only relying on likability But when you have stakes the picture changes because now there are consequences So when audiences ask themselves this question, they say okay, why is the protagonist persevering? Oh, it's because of the stakes and so then you get to you know, you keep them engaged with your story.
0: That's fantastic so the stakes in in a lot of ways also make the story believable
1: Exactly. Oh, that's such a good point. Yes. Stakes make a story believable in that sense. Like why does the protagonist keep on pursuing this goal? And it also can help establish the credibility of your premise. Like when you pair two characters together, I call these Plots of coerced coexistence. So it's when you pair, op- like two opposites attract those kinds of characters. Actually, I shouldn't say always attraction because it's not always a romantic relationship. Um, but you have two characters who are completely opposite of one another, and then they are forced to be together, to work together, some kind of pairing. And so, you know, naturally, when two people despise each other, why would they stick together? And, you know, logically they wouldn't, they would try to get out of that pairing, but maybe the stakes are what compel them to stay together. And so that also helps with the initial credibility of your premise.
0: So with that, you've got some aligned incentives between characters and that can allow you to explore some crazy juxtapositions, I guess. I know in The Silence of the Lambs, uh, Clarice and Hannibal Lecter, it's, I guess it's not necessarily that they... Uh, hate each other but they are an interesting duo that have some aligned incentives it's interesting
1: yeah that's a good example right so you can come up with this very interesting i like what you said what was that uh, juxtaposition of alignment or alignment of juxtaposition what did you say ross
0: there's some i guess some crazy character duos
1: yeah yeah exactly so you can come up with uh, an alignment of unexpected duos through the stakes and, and it's believable
0: yeah that's fantastic so Well, this is interesting then, uh, because you're kind of, you're laying out the case here, which you're doing quite well, that stakes are kind of the key to to making a story believable, engaging, and being able to explore, uh, I guess, some scenarios that you otherwise couldn't.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. That's a good way to put it. And if you go back to your example of Silence of the Lambs, I mean, it's not really believable without knowing that there's a serial killer out on the loose that um, Clarice can stop by consulting with Hannibal Lecter. It's not believable that Hannibal Lecter would be able to talk to the FBI. You know, you need to have that kind of stakes hanging in the balance.
0: Hmm, Nice. And do you equate stakes with consequences?
1: Yes, I would say so. So, I mean, I would probably frame it in the negative, the negative consequences of failure. But yes, stakes and consequences. That's a good, good way to think about it.
0: Okay, great. Now, how would you advise we create stakes for a story situation so that it doesn't feel contrived? Or, I guess, organic stakes?
1: Okay. Well, I think if you, well, I do have a little blueprint, a little approach, an approach to stakes. Okay. And I don't know if that's going to help you make them feel organic, but it will help you use them well. So it's basically a four part blueprint. And uh, the first part is to establish the stakes. The second part is to form a connection between audiences and the stakes. And then the third and the fourth part, you can remember through the abbreviation R&R, and here it doesn't mean rest and relaxation, but it means remind audiences about the stakes and raise the stakes. So I'll just repeat that one more time so it has a chance to settle in. So you establish the stakes, you form a connection between audiences and the stakes, then you remind audiences about the stakes, and then you raise the stakes. So that's, a, I think, a good blueprint, and you'll be on solid ground with stakes if you follow those. And we can dig into each of those now if you'd like.
0: Yes, please.
1: Okay, all right, so part one is establish the stakes. And I think this is something that is is sometimes easy to overlook, especially when you get really excited about your premise. So um, I know a few months ago, I discovered that uh, Andy Ware had written a new book, and it's called Artemis. Have you read it, Ross?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Okay, so basically, the book description said it's about a heist that takes place on the moon, and I'm like, nice. wow, that's really cool, right? That's a great idea, and I'm not really even a fan of—I uh, don't read science fiction that often, uh, if at all—and so I'm. But I thought that idea, that hook, was so intriguing that yeah. I was like, that's going in my TBR pile.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic premise.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic premise. So, but that's the kind of hook that you could get so excited about that you came up with it that you might forget to actually attach stakes to that goal. And I mean, obviously, in a heist, if uh, I don't know exactly what they're stealing because I, I all I saw was that—that's all I remember from that description. But if there's money, you can say, okay, so the goal is to achieve to gain that those millions or whatever is, you know, the score in the heist. But usually you want to attach some other kind of stakes to the goal. So it's not just about money. If not at the beginning, then by the middle or the end. So again, so if you came up with a really incredible uh, premise that that revolves around a heist, you want to think about, okay, what does the protagonist stand to gain by this? It, not just money, Right. And then um, another good example of kind of thinking about stakes is Night at the Museum. That's a really good example. So the the night guard at the Museum of Natural History, he finds out that the museum exhibits come to life at night. Now, I think that's like a really good high concept premise. Do you agree? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that's the kind of thing, like, you're pitching that around town, you know that that's going to make money, right? And so you can you can get really excited about that idea and just get so caught up in all the antics that are going to occur in the museum that you can forget completely to figure out, okay, what are the stakes? Like, what happens if this night security guard, if he doesn't, you know, conquer and tame the unruly museum exhibits? You know, so that's the kind of thing that you want to think about when you come up with your high concept premise. And so I, sometimes you will come up with the stakes naturally. Like if you came up with the concept for speed, you obviously have hostages on the bus. So, you know, those stakes are part of the premise. But with other kinds of premises, it's not so natural. And you really do need to kind of take a, a break and kind of a time out for a moment and pause to contemplate what you think the stakes are going to be.
0: Mm, and speed is such a great example Um, it's interesting because I I think it was your third step to remind the audience of of the stakes is that right yes so in speed because the stakes like you said are kind of built into the premise the stakes are in your face pretty much for every scene Um, do you how often do you advise that that the writer reminds the audience of the stakes if it's not kind of just obviously built into the premise like that
1: Uh, that's a good question i wouldn't say that i had a prescriptive number but i would definitely say that you because you know it's part of the blueprint so it's definitely important to do um but I would say, you know, definitely try to, if you haven't incorporated a reminder in the middle of your story, at least once, maybe twice. And um, another time that you want, you might want to incorporate a reminder is when the protagonist is going to do something that's morally questionable or perhaps unlikable. So you don't want audiences to disengage from him and to preserve that relationship between audiences and the protagonist if you remind audiences about the stakes and sort of explain Explain, okay this is why my protagonist is doing this thing that's not you know exactly likable mm-hmm. then they'll understand mm-hmm. so that's a good time to remind audiences about the stakes
0: i love that and, you know it just immediately brings to mind breaking bad for me
1: oh okay tell me about that ross because i i know the show is really popular but i've never watched it
0: yeah it's i'm not going to do it justice just because it's such a great show but it's uh the basic premise is it's, it's a guy who's a a chemistry, a high school chemistry teacher, and he basically turns into Scarface, for lack of a better term, over the course of five seasons. He, he turns uh-huh. into this um, drug kingpin. And oh. it's fascinating to watch his fall, if you will, how he becomes an antihero. They do such a great job at establishing empathy and establishing stakes. They're really, the pilot is just... It's amazing to watch that as um, as just a model of establishing empathy and stakes because the guy is, has been beaten down. I guess spoiler alert here you can you can stop this if you want to see the pilot on your own, but he's he's just been beaten down. His his wife kind of clearly dominates him. He hasn't gone as far as he obviously wanted to be this massive chemistry. Uh, he was part of a billion dollar company, so kind of this chemistry tycoon, if you will. But now he's just working as a a high school chemistry teacher and then he finds out that he has lung cancer you know he's gonna die in six months so those are some crazy stakes for him and so when he does something that is unlikable you're remind and it's a great point you're reminded of the stakes so you see wow that okay i, I see why he would do that
1: right he, as i understand it, he starts a meth lab right yeah that's right Right, and so that's a great example. That's a really good example, Ross, of how because he has cancer, and you know that he he has like these medical bills, and he needs to create some income to take care of his family in the future. Okay. How you're still on board with him, even though he's doing something that like you wouldn't normally agree with.
0: That's exactly right, and you you go along through the seasons, and every little step, you're like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess if you're in that position i could see why you would do that you got to take care of your family and this is the only way you can do it in six months i i understand but it's <laughs> it's amazing to see the fall just so subtly
1: uh-huh, yeah that's I, I love that example it's, it's a really good demonstration of how you can use stakes to um get audiences on board unlikable actions and then sometimes also unlikable heroes i don't know is he likable in other respects
0: so they to establish empathy for him they do some interesting things like um making everyone around him worse than he is (laughs) and Uh so in a relative sense he's probably one of the most likable guys on the show Uh, Uh but additionally he's incredibly skilled so we're fascinated by his skill in chemistry he's and he's a good father too you know he takes care of his Uh family so there are some likable aspects for sure
1: okay so he is—he is kind of likable in other respects, but he does this morally questionable behavior, and we're still on board because of the stakes.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I like that. I like uh, bringing up the stakes when the the hero is about to do something morally questionable.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely a good technique to use. And so
0: your fourth step of raising the stakes. I know you have a book called um, I think it's Magic Midpoint, or Midpoint Magic. Yes. Um it is midpoint magic yeah midpoint magic, yep. midpoint magic. And do you, is there something that happens at the midpoint related to the stakes? Because I know this is a big topic of conversation.
1: As a general rule, you want to raise the stakes at the middle of a story, because that means that the negative consequences of failure have grown in meaning. And that's important because then that gives your story a sense of escalation, right? That it's gotten more interesting as you've gone along. So that's why, as a general rule, you do want to raise the stakes at the middle. And a really good way to do that is to go from the general to the personal. So what I mean by that is that usually um, in an action movie, let's say, you know, the fate of the world or something like that is going to be at stake. And so the lives of the people that are endangered, they are not people that the hero has a personal connection to. But at the middle of the story, or perhaps right before the climax, something's going to happen that's going to endanger his personal family. So now the stakes are personal for him. So that's a really good, solid strategy to raise the stakes is to go from the general to the personal. But I do know that some writers have a problem with this because, well, they're resistant to that idea because so often... the the hero's wife or children are taken captive by the villain at the end of a movie and so that's why they don't want to use it because they feel like it's overdone but it is done for a reason and it's just simply because you know we do have that relationship to the protagonist. He's the person through whom we experience the entire story. He's our filter and so we have this personal identification with him as audience members and so naturally anything that affects him directly is going to affect us more at a at a deeper emotional level. So we're just going to respond more deeply to anything that personally affects him excuse me, affects him and that's why it's so valuable to make the stakes personal.
0: Mm, I like that going from the general to the personal. So when you're raising the stakes then, you're not just talking about like, well in the first half he owes $100 to somebody and then the second half he owes 1000 It's not necessarily just an increase in the amount of the stake, it's a sort of a categorical change.
1: Well, the example you gave, I mean, that can work, but I think going from the general to the personal might be maybe a stronger way to do it. But um, it is, as a general mindset to have, the more you can tie to the outcome of the climax, then the higher the stakes are going to be, right? Because now there's going to be more writing on the line at the climax, which is going to determine the, the situation or the fate of the stakes once and for all. So you could have a story where you start out, we'll just say, imaginary. And the stakes are a hundred dollars, and then by the middle, the stakes are a thousand dollars, and that could work. But um, but going from the general to the personal might have a, a sort of deeper effect on audience emotions.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And so you mentioned raising the stakes at the midpoint. Are there any other key moments structurally that um, you want to highlight the stakes?
1: Well, in terms of Raising stakes generally occurs at the middle, but you could also do something right before the end of Act Two, or sorry, right at the end of Act Two, right before the climax. And sometimes you can raise the stakes right in the middle of the climax. Um, I think a good example of this, and I saw this a while ago. I didn't see it in the theaters; I saw it uh, streaming. Was Ant Man? But I saw it a while ago, so the details are a little hazy. Have you seen it, Ross?
0: I saw Ant Man and the Wasp, but not Ant Man.
1: Okay. All right. So in Ant-Man at the very end, so Scott is Ant-Man and there's a villain and the villain has some technology that's going to basically destroy the world. Okay, and so at the beginning of the climax, the stakes are that Scott has to destroy the villain's technology at these headquarters in order to save the world, and that is um, and everything that's done there is really interesting. It's it's great spectacle, it's great entertainment, and I think they did a really good job with it. So, however, once Scott like finishes that, right, the climax could be over. But it's not because the villain survives this encounter and then he goes after Scott's daughter. So you see, they really took it, made those stakes very personal right in the middle of the climax because now Scott has to uh, fight off and fend the villain in order to save his daughter's life.
0: Mm, I like that. That's pretty great, actually. You can kind of just get more emotional rocket fuel by upping the stakes whenever you can.
1: Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. And I just should add, excuse me, I, I just should add that it's a good example of making stakes personal and putting the protagonist's child in danger at the end. It's a good example of why it works to do that, because um, for any writer who's resistant to doing that, I suggest that they imagine the film ends Uh, with Scott, you know, trouncing the villain at the headquarters and destroying all of that technology and it doesn't continue onward. And you can just sort of, you can feel the difference, right? One ending the story with him saving his daughter is just so much more emotionally intense and emotionally rich. And you feel so much more witnessing that than you do um, with him destroying that technology at the villain's headquarters.
0: You mentioned breaking up stakes. I think it was into action versus romance. Was that right?
1: Right at the beginning. Well, I, I wouldn't say that there certain stakes are action or romance. It's just sort of things, There are general trends that occur with action and romance. And one is that in a romance novel, not all of them, but in some of them, the only stakes that are going to be in play are the happiness of the hero and the heroine. But in an action movie, you need something more than that. Sometimes it's, you know, the fate of the world will be at stake or some, it would be something else like maybe the, um, the freedom of a character or something like that would be at stake.
0: Got it. And so would you say maybe that action movies tend to go more or action stories tend to go more towards some sort of physical safety stakes, uh, potentially death and then, I guess romance is more emotional stakes.
1: Yeah, that would be a good way to put it. And I should, I mean, I really want to emphasize it's not that all romances are like that. It's just that some of them are like that. Whereas with action, you know, you always, you generally always have some kind of feeling of physical danger that's going to be taking place at some point in the story. Maybe it won't start out that way, but it will by the end. Whereas in romance, you know, it, it might not go, you won't have that physical danger in place unless you're doing a hybrid, like romantic suspense.
0: Is there anything else, uh, any other advice regarding stakes that you have for us?
1: Okay, all right, so we, we went through, I think, three parts of the blueprint because we talked about establishing the stakes and we did the r we talked about reminding audiences about the stakes and raising the stakes, but we didn't talk about forming the bond with the stakes. W- one thing that I think writers can neglect to do is they neglect to, they kind of go, they vary between two extremes. They spend too much time showing the stakes at the beginning of a story. And they kind of, they get frustrated with that because it's very slow, right? Those scenes tend to be very slow. And then on the other hand, you have writers who neglect to, Uh, spend time with the stakes, those characters at the beginning of the story, at all. And the problem with that is that when those characters are actually put in jeopardy at the end of the story, we as audience members don't feel as much. We still might be worried about them and we do want the protagonist to save them, but we're not going to feel the same amount as we do when we've gotten to know and like them, so when we've spent time with them. And a, a good time to do that is in the beginning. But then you run into this issue that if you start your story spending time with the stakes and that is kind of slow, then you might lose audiences there and they might not even get to the end when the stakes are put in jeopardy and when, you know, you're trying to elicit that maximum, maximum degree of emotion from them. So one way to overcome that is through using genre. And, and starting your story with a genre fulfilling sequence because what that does is it it, it earns uh, it earns patience. For- From the audience. So now that they've been satisfied, they've gotten that dose of action or thrills, then when you transition into the slower stuff and you start to spend time with the protagonist and you start to spend time with the characters who are the stakes, audiences are going to be patient and they're going to sit through it instead of putting down your story. And I think um, a really good example of this is Air Force One. Because at the beginning of the story, the president uh, played by Harrison Ford, there's a lot of slow stuff at the beginning where he's spending time with his wife and he's spending time with his daughter and, and other people personnel on the plane. And that's so important because these characters are going to be held hostage by the villain. And so to care about uh, Harrison Ford, I forget his name in the movie, Marshall, Marshall. To care about Marshall's quest to stay, to save the stakes, it's important to spend time with them at the beginning. But it is a really slow way to start a story. And um, the film overcame this because they don't start right with Marshall. They actually start with a sequence where uh, Russian and American special forces join together to do some joint operation that involves a dictator. So anyway, that uh, that sequence provides the genre and that genre provides the patience so that when we go through those slower scenes where Marshall is doing administrative work and spending time with the stakes, like we're okay with that and we're, we're eager to see what happens next.
0: Interesting. So would you equate that sort of genre scene with a hook?
1: A genre can definitely be a hook. Yeah. Something that keeps readers hooked. So I would say that, um, for example, marketing materials like, you know, the movie poster or book cover, those hook readers and then and also a high concept premise hook readers. And then those opening pages, you have to kind of wedge in that hook and, and sink it in deeper. And genre does that.
0: I like that. I like the idea of the hook kind of not not just being one scene, but the whole entry process to the story. Right, right. So I can see why you would need to, like you said, this setting up the stakes can be a bit of a slow process, but you're gonna need them in order for the audience to be emotionally attached to the story. So you can combine Mm -hmm. that with other more exciting moments, I guess, to, to slip in the stakes.
1: Right. Exactly. Or though, as you can see, as we talked about earlier, speed in that situation, you got to know the stakes, you know, why they were in jeopardy and as Jack is on the bus. So that was because of the, the nature of the premise. That was really neat because you didn't have that kind of slow stuff. You had it why they were, you know, all the action is taking place and still you maintain that emotional relationship because you do get to know them over the course of the story. So that, that, um, due to the nature of that plot, that's a kind of different approach that you can take.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating, the different challenges that each different premise poses, I guess. Speed's got the stakes down. <laughs> so <laughs> are there any other mistakes you see writers making a lot when it comes to stakes? Or, um, you know, I guess your your matrix there, that, that four-step process, is something I'd never heard. And it seems incredibly helpful for making sure you lay out the stakes properly.
1: Okay, you mean the blueprint that we talked about today yeah. or the matrix that's in the book? Oh, uh,
0: the blueprint. The blueprint.
1: Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, the blueprint's really good. That's, I think if uh, your audience follows the steps in the blueprint, they're going to be on really solid ground with respect to the stakes. So I should just, uh, maybe I should just repeat them quickly. So it has a chance to settle yes, in. Please. So the four parts of the blueprint are that you want to establish what the stakes are. You want to form a connection between audiences and the stakes. You want to remind audiences about the stakes, and then you want to raise the stakes.
0: Yeah. I love that. Well, I'm writing that down. And uh, (laughs) and staking it on my monitor here. So (laughs) thank you for that. Um, Is there any last storytelling wisdom you want to share with us? I mean, I'm going to have to be listening to this all again and taking notes. This has been a treasure trove.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Ross. Um, I guess one thing I would want to say is that I know that different writers do different things to get noticed. Uh, For example, if you're a novelist, you might put your novel on sale for 99 cents. You might change the cover design for your book. If you're a screenwriter, you might do a lot of networking and trade some favors. And so the thing with that is that Those activities can get your story read. They can sort of give you a chance, but those activities aren't going to compel someone to keep on reading. But stakes, they can do that. So that's why I just encourage all writers to learn how to use stakes well, um, powerfully and intentionally, because that's going to get someone to finish your story and then rave about it when they're done.
0: Mm. So stakes are the key to a compelling and engaging story.
1: Yes, I, I believe that. Yeah,
0: I mean, you've you've laid out the case here. That's fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your wisdom, HRD. I'll, I'll include your site and uh, your books in the show notes. And we really look forward to hearing more story wisdom from you in the future. Thank you again.
1: Oh, thank you, Ross. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to H.R. DaCosta for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing her storytelling wisdom with us all. I'll include links to her site and books in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. You can learn more about upcoming guests, our creative writing group, and writing workshops at our website, kingo.com. That's K-I-I-N-G-O. Com. That's all for today. Now, let's get to work and write some great stories.